Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of It Ain't Week to Speak. My name is Sam Webb, and I'm here to share some of the most epic conversations I get to have with some of the most fascinating people on our planet. Every episode is dedicated to elevating the conversation around mental health because it ain't weak to speak. I'm a massive believer that a conversation could change and save a life for the better. Thank you for joining me on this journey. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode on the podcast, episode number 77. Are you kidding me? This podcast is flying by week in, week out. You guys are showing up without you. This wouldn't be possible, that's for sure. I'm always excited to be here, whether I'm doing a a solo episode on some type of topic or wisdom, or whether I'm speaking to a guest from somewhere around the world. I hope that you love it here. I hope that you really enjoy it here. And I hope if if you're new to the podcast today, I don't know how you got here and who got you here, but I want to say welcome. I hope that you get everything out of it and more and you share the love with your community because a conversation can save a life. And on that note, I'm going to make a mention. If you do like this podcast, if you genuinely like it, please leave me a review. Rate the podcast. It will take you literally 10 seconds because it helps me grow this channel so that we can help more people and I can give you the the content that you're after. Also, please hit the subscribe button. Subscribing to the podcast not only helps us climb the charts on Apple and Spotify, but it allows us to build this community together so that people in different countries and places in this world can get access to this show and they see it. And hopefully we can help enrich their lives for the better. So yes, hit the subscribe button and let's grow this community together because as I said earlier, and I'm a massive believer of it, a conversation saves lives. I've seen it. I've literally seen it. So on that note, this is episode number 77. I'm getting onto the podcast, a guy by the name of David Gillespie. Now, David is a lawyer. He's a litigation lawyer by trade, and he's actually an author of over nine books. Now, the books that I want to be talking about with David today is a book called Sweet Poison. It was actually a best-selling book he published back in 2008. And basically dives really deep into the evidence and the scientific facts and research that is currently out there in the world around how we're all poisoning ourselves with sugar and how David, I guess, adapted his life being extremely overweight and what he calls fat and how he employed, I guess, the learnings that he learned into his life for the better. We also talk around one of his latest books as well called brain reset and we also talk about the direct correlation around dopamine and addiction between food drugs alcohol cigarettes and whatnot and how that impacts our lives this episode is unbelievable i left this episode thinking 
how much I know more now about food and you know the brain. The guy is, a, is actually a powerhouse of knowledge and experiences. And his experience doesn't come from him being a mental health professional or a nutrition or a dietitian or anyone of that nature. It actually comes from his expertise in the field of research and understanding the evidence and basically taking that evidence and putting it into into a book where just like all of us can read and learn and understand it to the best of our ability, I guess. So without, I guess, talking too much and spoiling anything else, let's get David Gillespie onto the podcast. I'm hoping that this is going to be part one of a, of a two-part series at the very least because we could have talked for days and you'll, you'll soon find out why. So stay around. It's going to be a great, great episode. You're going to learn a shit ton here and I'm excited to have you guys here. Without further ado, take it away, David Gillespie. Well, welcome on to the podcast, David Gillespie, mate. It's an absolute pleasure having you on here. How are you today? Yeah, good. Good to be with you, Sam. It's always a pleasure having new guests on the podcast, but more importantly, it's an absolute pleasure having someone of your caliber on the podcast. Obviously, you've written a handful of books, which no doubt today we'll be talking about, that's for sure. Where are you at this very moment, mate? Where am I speaking you at? I'm in Brisbane in Queensland, so enjoying a Queensland winter. Oh, nice, mate. I was actually just oh, I was just in Sydney. I flew back a couple of days ago, so I might sound a little bit raspy. That's just a bit of my jet lag probably, mate, kicking in. So <laughs> other than that, mate, it's always good. What I guess probably drove me to wanting to connect with you, I listened to a couple of your podcasts. I was introduced to you by a friend or a mutual friend of both of ours, Lola Berry. Listen to obviously mm. your podcast with her or a couple of your podcasts, I should say, part one and part two. And, you know, around obviously all this great work you do, right? When we talk about writing books, being an author and that sort of stuff. But what really probably caught my attention most is you're kind of challenging the status quo in Australia. Like if we look back to 2008, you wrote one of the best selling books called Sweet Poison about how humanity are poisoning ourselves with sugar but you really don't have much of a background your background no formal qualifications in in dietetics nutrition and all of that sort of stuff and i guess you raised a few eyebrows and probably got some organizations in australia asking the question how how and why is this guy talking about this stuff when he's not even really qualified but you are a qualified lawyer so your evidence-based side of things and research is probably something that you're extremely well versed in mate can you talk to me through a little bit about that and how that all started yeah so, yeah, well, I wrote Sweet Poison because I wanted to stop being so fat. So I guess I'd spent, you know, like most adult males in Western society, spent most of my life putting on weight. And it hadn't been like I hadn't tried not to do that, you know, when diets had come on the telly and so on, and I'd give them a go, you know, low carb or, you know, cabbage diet or, you know, walking the dog type thing and they all worked they all worked for exactly as long as my willpower would hold yeah, out which sure. was usually about two weeks yeah and in that two weeks you know you'd lose a couple of kilos and then you'd be well and truly sick of it and so you'd stop and then the weight would come back usually with interest and i thought this can't be correct as you say i'm not a dietitian or a medical person of any description but i am trained in the gathering and the understanding of evidence from quite diverse fields in that i'm a litigation lawyer so i thought what does the evidence really say? What am I misunderstanding here about how to apply this evidence? And I thought it really was my fault. I thought 
you know, I'm clearly not getting something about how, you know, human weight is supposed to, you know, accrue or be lost. And so I went looking for the evidence. First of all, I just worked on the presumption that what our health authorities were telling us was the absolute truth and must be based on evidence. So I went to look at that evidence. And I found it, and I found it was nonsense. Wouldn't stand up for half a microsecond in a court. It all seemed to be based on large-scale population-level studies where you could have picked any two variables randomly and associated them. And I thought to myself, this surely can't be the state of the evidence that is, you know, this is an area that affects a huge percentage of the population, seems to be responsible for, in my estimation, between 70 and 80% of chronic disease. It must be more than a bit of guesswork. And what I continuously found was that that wasn't the case, that it was just guesswork and that the advice we were being given seemed to be based on nothing more sophisticated than eating fat makes you fat, which makes about as much scientific sense as eating cucumbers makes you green. (laughs) And the other big one was that, you know, calories are all that matter. And that seemed nonsensical because when you get down to the metabolic level, the human body isn't a machine. It's biochemistry and calories are the least of the body's concerns when it comes to processing things that get put in your mouth. And so I started looking at, well, if this evidence is nonsense, is there any other evidence? Is is there anything else that you could look at? And what I found was that there was quite a lot of other evidence. It just wasn't being put into the public domain in any reasonable way. You know, there was fantastically high quality evidence done by the London School of Nutrition after the Second World War, which clearly identified sugar as being the culprit and gave a biochemical explanation as to why it was the culprit. And this was the work of a fellow by the name of John Yudkin, who had spent most of his professional career establishing this only to end it with players from the US who wanted this narrative about fat makes you fat in the mainstream, essentially destroying his career. But it didn't destroy the quality of the science he had done. So I went looking at what he had done and the work of some others based on what he had done. And it all boiled down to, really, if you want to lose weight, what you've got to do is stop eating sugar. And in particular, what you've got to do is stop eating the fructose half of sugar. Now, just to be clear on that. Please explain. (laughs) So sugar, sucrose, the thing that, you know, the white stuff that you sprinkle on your cornflakes in the morning is actually a pair of molecules, sugar molecules. It's glucose joined to fructose. Now, the glucose half of sugar is the same as the glucose in all carbohydrates that humans consume and that all mammals do. Yeah, simple carbohydrate that... And it's our primary fuel source. I mean, if you look at the human metabolism, it's designed on the assumption that the vast majority of carbohydrates can be turned into glucose or are glucose, and the body uses them as a first source of fuel in the environment. So if there was a problem with the glucose half of sugar, then that was a very big problem because just about everything else we eat has a significant amount of glucose in it as well. So we probably are pretty well adapted to that. I'm really outlining John Yudkin's reasoning here. But the fructose half of sugar is another thing altogether. Now, some people will have heard of it because it's the people are told that's the sugar that's in fruit, which is sort of true, but it is in fruit, but it's also in a lot of other things too in the modern age. And that is since we've learned how to extract it from sugar cane and sugar beets, 
and add it to everything, which is what we do with sugar, what we call sugar. It is now added to almost all food on the okay, supermarket so we're, we're talking not just your hard sweets like chocolates and candies. No, it's not about. in the – I mean, yes, it's in the obvious things. It, you know, it's in the chocolate bars and the soft drinks and so on, but it's also in everything else. So you've got breakfast cereals yep. that are a quarter to a third sugar that are, that say that, that don't say anything about containing any sugar. Yeah, 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 exactly. You know, they're advertised as Iron Man food yeah. or as – you know, health food, and they have huge quantities of sugar. And the reason they do is because you wouldn't eat them if they didn't. They're tasteless garbage. But so, in order to make them edible, you've got to put a significant amount of sugar in the things. So, anyway, getting back to the point. So, the fructose half of sugar, Yudkin theorized, was might be a problem. And so, he constructed a series of experiments in animals and then in humans, where he differentiated fed people sucrose, glucose, and fructose to see what the effects were. And what he found was that the ones who were fed just pure glucose didn't make any difference to them at all. They didn't gain weight. They didn't lose weight. They didn't, you know, if they were normal weight to start with, they stayed normal. If they were overweight to start with, then over time they started to lose weight. So, but in the sucrose case and in the fructose case, something very different happened. What was going on there is that they gained weight and metabolic markers started to go all awry. So they started to show early signs of type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, blood pressure, higher blood pressure, et cetera. And he noticed that this was worse in the ones that were given pure fructose than in the ones that were just given sucrose, which was only half fructose. He theorized and has ultimately been proven correct that there must be a special metabolic problem with fructose and trace that back to the fact that in our environment, that is pre us learning how to make sugar or extract sugar, which is actually relatively recent. I mean, that's only really happened since the early 1800s in any sort of significant scale. But if you look at the human diet before that, there really wasn't a significant amount of fructose in the diet. The only real sources of it were fresh fruit, which is pretty hard to come by through most of human history, and honey, which you used to have to have a discussion with some bees about getting that. And the result was that total human exposure to fructose amounted to uh, the equivalent of about a couple of teaspoons of sugar a day prior to the early 1800s. It is now well over 40 teaspoons a day. So why is it pumped into so much then? Well, because food with sugar added sells an awful lot better than food without sugar added. And the reason for that is even if you can't taste the sugar, is that we now know that the fructose half of sugar has a highly addictive effect. So it's addictive. If they could get away with putting nicotine in our food, they would. They still can get away with putting nicotine in vapes. So that's why they do it. Because if they didn't, they wouldn't sell vapes. Same deal here with food, which is they need to put something addictive in it because otherwise, if you don't, and you're in the food industry and you're going to make some money, your growth is limited to population growth, which in Western countries is 2% or less per annum, which is nothing It's horrible as far as a company is concerned. You go to the stock market and say you've got growth of 2% per annum, they'll laugh. Pretty rough, yeah. We're precisely talking about some game here where we're precisely talking about businesses making money is basically what I'm hearing you say. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. You can't see it, but every day in the supermarket, there is outright warfare going on on the shelves between, you know, you you walk into the cereal aisle, (laughs) you'll see 10 different brands of cornflakes and all of them want you to buy their brand. Yeah. And how do you think they're going to do that? They've got to make you addicted to theirs. And the best way to do that is fill their food with addictive substances because the food substance 
substance itself, you know, flakes of corn is pretty horrible. Mm. If you're going to convince someone who's decided that they want to consume that to consume yours versus the guy next to you, you've got to add something addictive to it or you're in trouble. Yeah, right. uh, the re- end result is that most brands of cornflakes are about 10% sugar. And that's before you add any, any of it to it yourself, which means that in a 100-gram bowl of cornflakes, which is about what most people eat, despite what it says on the yeah. recommended serving sizes, yeah. that's 10 grams of sugar, which is you know two and a half teaspoons of sugar before you add any before yourself. You add in your other stuff and then your milk and everything else on it, which is probably also mm. sugar. Okay, yeah, wow. Mate, that's bloody – yeah, wow. I mean, I experienced this firsthand with cornflakes because when I first started doing this, or like when I wrote Sweet Poison, I thought, oh, I better go and have a look at the labels and read the labels and find out how much sugar is in the things that I like. And my kids at the time were eating cornflakes, so I had a look at the labels. And I found that of the 10 brands in our local supermarket, nine of them were all about the 10% mark, but one brand. Woolworths home brand was only about 5%. So, of course, I bought that. And so we were happily going along on that, figuring 5% wasn't that bad. It's only a teaspoon of sugar for every 100 grams. But then suddenly it disappeared from the shelves. So I, wow. I rang up Woolworths and, and said, oh, you know, what's the problem if you stopped making it? Because it was the Woolworths home brand. And they said, oh, no, 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 don't worry. It'll be back on the shelves. We're just reformulating sure. it. It'll be back in a couple of months. Pump, pumped it with more so I waited for it to be reformulated and there it was on the shelves in a couple of months as promised and it had been reformulated all right. It was now 10% sugar, just like all of its competitors. So that's what is happening every day. Now, we don't see it as obviously as that. You wouldn't even notice it if you weren't reading the labels of everything every day. But there's a constant battle going on to get as much addictive substance into the food. And frequently you might think, wow, but I'd taste it. You know, if there were people loading my food with sugar, I'd taste it because I'd taste how sweet it was. Two things working against that. The first is that we become quite immune to the taste of sugar. One of the things you notice when you stop eating sugar, as I did when I wrote Sweet Poison and still do to this day, is that you regain your palate and you discover that you've been blinded by the taste of sweetness in that you've adapted to everything being sweet. Now, if I taste something with barbecue sauce on it, like accidentally forget to say no sauce when I order my bacon and exani in the morning, it tastes like someone's you know smeared icing all over it. Yeah, right. It's so sweet to me. But a person who's eating that every day isn't even going to notice. They're just going to notice the salty taste of the sauce. And that is often what's done in food to disguise the amount of sugar that's being put in is to add more salt because the salt balances out the wow. sweetness of the sugar. And you might say, well, that's what's incredible. the point of that? Why put all that sugar in and then put salt in so you can't taste it? Because they're not putting it in for the taste. They're putting it in for the addiction. They're putting wool over your eyes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, so, mate, a question for you then. Okay, so this has really been brought out of a passion at an age where you were overweight, you wanted to lose weight, but you wanted to get to the bottom and you wanted to figure out exactly what was the best. Now, after all of these years, we're talking 13 odd, 14 odd years ago, this is when you wrote the book, you talk about sucrose fructose, right? Is there one that's better than the other? And are we talking about in certain amounts they're okay for you? Or is it just like, where can we draw the line and what is it that consumers like myself, like our guests that have been on this podcast or our audience members, what can they look out for in order to be better educated at this particular topic? Because I know that this is something that a lot of people resonate with. 
Yeah, well, so the fructose is the dangerous part. You want that to be as close as to zero as possible. So does that mean fruit is bad or too much fruit is bad? Well, I'll come to fruit in a second, okay. but let's just talk about the foods that have had it added. So when you pick up an item off the shelf yep. and you look at the label, it'll say on the back, because it's required to by law in most countries, under carbohydrates, it'll have a section that says sugars. Yes. Sometimes it'll say including sugars. Mm -hmm. And it'll have a line there and it'll tell you how much sugar is. Now, if you're fortunate enough to live outside the United States, and I say fortunate in the sense of labeling laws, I'll come to what they do in the United States. But everywhere else, what they have on that line is something that tells you how much per 100 grams. And that makes it really, really easy to compare how much sugar is in this product from product to product to product. So when before when I was talking about cornflakes, that would have been, well, that was easy for me to do because I just pick up the label, I can see sugars and I can see 10 grams per 100, yeah. which is 10% sugar. Uh -huh. So you should just assume that that is sucrose and that half of it is therefore fructose. And you want to get that as close to zero as possible. But what I found amongst the studies is that there is a threshold. It's sort of a minimum threshold of about three grams per 100, which, well, maximum threshold of three grams per 100, which is to say 3% of the food. If it's more than 3% sugar, then put it back on the shelf. So I wouldn't have been able to buy any of those cornflakes because they're 10% sugar, 10 grams per 100. But if you look at, pick up a food and look at it, say like a passata, you know, a tomato paste, which just consists of tomatoes, you'll see that there's no added sugar and you'll see it's about five grams per 100. So it's a bit of a gray rule in the sense that you first of all have to look, has sugar been added to this product, which you can see from the ingredients list. You'll see the word sugar in the ingredients list, or you might see high fructose corn syrup if you're in the United States. Yep, yep. So if sugar has been added to the product and it is more than three grams per hundred, put it back. Now you will find if you apply this rule in your average supermarket, there's not going to be much, much on the shelves that you can get. No, you will find that there's at least one brand in most categories where they don't add sugar where that's just their thing. They've got a traditional recipe for whatever they're doing and they're sticking to that recipe and they don't add sugar. They're usually a fairly well-established brand in the area. And sometimes it's the home brand, the supermarket home brand, which is usually getting the same manufacturer to do it off-label. Yeah, right. So you might say, well, how can I say that's a lot <laughs> yeah. of label reading. Yeah, yeah. There's, you know, there's tens of thousands of products on the shelves. Well, the easiest way is don't go into the central area of the supermarket, shop the edge. You know, if you shop the perimeter of a supermarket, you're just eating whole foods, right? You've got fresh fruit and veg, you've got your meat, you've got your dairy, you've got your eggs. That's all on the edge of the supermarket. And you can just buy from there and you'll be perfectly fine. Yeah. You don't need to read any labels. The trouble is some assembly is required and that bit usually defeats most people. So if you do want to venture into the center aisles, I do publish a series of guides. They're a little bit older now. Most of them came out in 2016 for, there's a UK one, a US one, and an Australian one where I've gone through every product in the supermarket and analyzed it in that way and identified the brands of each category that do have sugar levels low enough that you could safely consume them. So when you've got added sugar though, right? For example, if you've got something yep. that's got your sugar and then it's got added sugar, you see that on labels all the time. Is that added sugar yes. sucrose, which is made up of fructose or is it all fructose? You should assume it's sucrose. Okay, which is a combination. Is that correct? It's a combination of glucose and fructose and therefore you should avoid it okay. because it contains fructose. Okay. There is one exception to this, which is dairy products. So you might pick up a carton of milk and you'll look at the label and you'll see, oh my God, it's five grams per hundred sugar. I can't even have that, even though it doesn't have any added sugar. It's fine. 
because the sugar in milk doesn't contain any fructose. The sugar in milk is lactose, which is actually a combination of another simple sugar called galactose and glucose. And the body processes galactose to glucose. So it's effectively all glucose and it's fine. It doesn't contain any fructose at all. So dairy products, you know, milk or things based on milk like yogurt that do not have added sugar. So obviously flavored milk has added sugar and flavored yogurt has added sugar. But if you're looking at Greek yogurt or just plain milk. Non-fat Greek yogurt. Yeah. Well, don't even have to be non-fat. I mean, the fat is good for you. So, you know, go for the fat, but just don't, just pay attention to how much sugar is added to it and you don't want any added to it. So your basic standard traditional Greek yogurt is fine. Yeah. Wow, mate. That's very interesting because, you know, most of us, most of society, we're just not educated to understand this and mate i'm someone that definitely goes into my local whole foods or trader joe's and i do look at the label on things you know but to be brutally honest my first thing is you know i always think of looking to saturated fats as the culprit of things yeah and that is really wrong is it yeah no absolutely i wrote a series of books about this the first one was the big fat lie and then one called toxic oils and yeah, more yeah. recently the good fat guide and the story we've been given about fat is not only nonsense, it's harmfully wrong. They're telling us to avoid the fats that our body actually needs, which are saturated and monounsaturated fats. And they're telling us to consume polyunsaturated fats, which are seed oils, things like sunflower oil and safflower oil and rice bran oil and grapeseed oil and all those sorts of things, which are actively dangerous for us to consume in, in the kinds of quantities that we are now. Oh, yeah. So that's a topic for a whole other day. We can talk about why that is, but it boils down to that you are much more likely to suffer from really chronic, nasty, debilitating disease states like cancer, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, et cetera, if you are over-consuming polyunsaturated fats, particularly in the form of seed oils, which is where we see it in most low-fat food products or most products which claim to be low-saturated fat. In fact, seed oils are now in everything. So if anything, I think this is a bigger problem than sugar because the effects of seed oil consumption are cumulative and very, very hard to reverse. Whereas with sugar, as long as you haven't broken anything, you know, like turned insulin resistance into type 2 diabetes, et cetera, then you have a chance if you just stop eating fructose that everything goes back into reverse. Whereas with seed oils, much harder problem to solve. But we can talk about that another yeah, day. Mate, I'd absolutely, yeah, I'd absolutely love to pick up on that and talk about, you know, a few of your other books and research papers and whatnot that you've written around that i think that's important and especially it's something i'm fascinated about because i had high cholesterol Oh, one thing i wanted to say oh yeah don't worry about cholesterol but when we talk another day we'll get into some detail about cholesterol and what exactly is wrong with the way it's measured and why for most of the things they tell us about cholesterol it's irrelevant nonsense but anyway just want to come back circle back around to that label question what's the difference with u.s labels yeah the u.s so u.s labels Mm -hmm. In the US, you're not required to say how much per 100 grams. And if the sugar content is less than half a gram per serving, you can describe it as zero. Now, the greatest example of this, which I find hilarious, is Tic Tacs. So, you know, the Tic Tacs, the the breath mints. If you pick up 
Tic Tacs in the US, you'll see on the label that it says there is zero grams of sugar in the product because they don't have a per 100 gram line on there and it is less than half a gram of sugar per Tic Tac, which is the recommended serving size, i.e. one Tic Tac. So you can pick that up and you say, oh, look, no sugar at all. That's strange. It tastes sweet, but it has no sugar. I do that. Yeah. But if you pick up the same product in Australia, you'll read the rest of the label. The rest of the label, first of all, you don't get to say zero. You'll, You'll have to say how much sugar it really is. And in half a gram of Tic Tac, there's about half a gram of sugar because it's 97% sugar. And you would see that in the per 100 gram column in Australia because you would see 97 per 100 grams. So in the US, you pick up the product, it says zero sugar. In Australia, you pick it up, it says 97% sugar. The only difference is that 100 gram labeling isn't there in the US. And that's the problem with food in general labeling in the US is that you can't see it. And depending on the serving size they choose, which is entirely at the discretion of the manufacturer, they can make it look like there's not much sugar in that product at all. Yeah, because they can minimize the serving size in order to... Yes, You're kidding. Mate, I had no idea about that, hey? And why is that though? Like, Why do they allow that over here as opposed to other countries? The food lobby in the United States is just more powerful than in some other countries. I mean, it's pretty powerful in most countries, but in the US, they managed to talk them. It was proposed for a while to put the 100 gram labeling on US products, but the food industry managed to buy off enough politicians to make it not happen. Yeah, wow. Man, that's bloody fascinating, isn't it? And what do you put it down to with then, you know, to bring it this full circle and to pick up on one of my questions earlier about fructose or fructose being one of the most dangerous parts of sugar. What is it about fruit and how is fruit metabolized in the body? Oh, let's get back to fruit. Okay. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So let's go back. Because we yeah, all, we're okay. all smashing fruit. We all think fruit's good. I've always been under the assumption based on what I've read and done research in the past is too much fruit's no good. Maybe one, one piece of fruit a day or every couple of days isn't too bad. But mate, you tell yeah. me otherwise. No, that's fine. I'm not against people eating whole fruit. Just as you say, one or two pieces a day should do you. Treat it like what it is, which is nature's dessert. I mean, fruit was evolved by trees to get animals to eat their fruit and distribute their seeds over the competitors. So, you know, somewhere in the evolutionary change, there was an adjustment to a glucose molecule to make it sweeter to my, and that's what created the fructose molecule and plants do it that way. So they're doing it to get people to consume fruit. There are no intrinsic values, nutritional values in fruit that you couldn't get from vegetables and vegetables have almost no fructose content. So, you know, if you're saying, oh, you know, I won't survive without the vitamins or fiber or whatever it is, you're supposed to get from fruit, then eat vegetables. But there's also nothing wrong with eating a piece of fruit. As I said, nature's dessert. If you treat it like that, as in, would I be eating a bowl of ice cream now? Your answer is yes, then sure, I'll eat a banana. If the answer is no, I wouldn't be eating a bowl of ice cream in the middle of this meeting, then perhaps you shouldn't be eating the fruit either. Because that's the rule of thumb to apply. And honestly, I don't think about it much. If there's a piece of fruit there, I'll have it. But I'm definitely not eating fruit every day. And there's no need to do that. Use it as a treat. And when you delete sugar from your diet, it is actually a treat. It tastes so sweet that it really does seem like you're having dessert when you have some fruit. There is an exception to this is when the fruit has been turned into something where the goal is to extract all the sugar and throw away everything else, like juice, that is absolutely not on. Fruit juice has as much sugar as Coke and should be treated exactly the same. There is nothing healthy about fruit juice. It is quite dangerous to be consuming it. Uh, same thing goes. What? So even if I went and bought like 15 oranges and put them in a little grinder and I just got fresh orange juice, that's just as bad? Well, I don't care if your mother knitted them for you. It's still all you're doing, but with your grinder is sucking the sugar out of the fruit and throwing away everything else. Yeah, wow. That is just crazy. So it's homemade Coke is orange juice. There's no reason to be consuming it and you shouldn't be. It's just dangerous. And the same goes for other things like dried fruit. I don't know if you remember from your school days, those little packets of sultanas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, that's half a kilo of grapes in one of those little packets of sultanas. So no kid sitting at school is going to eat smash down a half a kilo of grapes, but they can knock over one of those little packets of sultanas pretty easily. They're just sweets and treat them as such and, yeah, don't feed them to your kids. Wow. I've learned that much just in this past 30 minutes that I haven't learned in my entire life. So no doubt our our audiences are definitely absolutely switched on. Now, what I'm particularly interested in hearing, obviously your journey. So when you started, you know, looking at where you were on the scales and then figuring out what the fuck's going wrong, what do I need to change? Yeah. Did you see a dramatic shift in that? And when we talk about willpower. Yeah, yeah. And that was the big difference is it didn't require willpower. So there was an initial period because this is an addictive substance we're talking about. So I had to withdraw from it and that was not fun. It's like a drug. Yeah, it is. And I had to withdraw from it. And that took several, probably two to four weeks of 
really quite intense cravings for things that contain sugar. But once you get through that, not eating sugar is actually pretty easy to do. And it ended up with me losing about 40 kilos and ever since then, keeping it off. Now, it didn't turn me into Brad Pitt. I I wasn't before I gained the weight and I wasn't after I lost the weight. But what it did was change my life. I, I went from the default position being I was just going to get heavier every year to I stayed the same weight no matter what I ate as long as I didn't eat sugar. So, and it didn't mean a great lifestyle adjustment for me at the time. You know, it meant I could still have, you know, pie and chips. I just couldn't have sauce on the pie because, you know, tomato sauce is 25% sugar and barbecue sauce is 55% sugar. So once you're aware of where the sugar is, keeping it out actually turns out to be relatively simple. And as long as you stick to that hard rule, which is I'm just not going to consume it, it's easy to stay off it because you break the addiction and you get to the point where you just couldn't care less about, you know, people can offer you a chocolate and you can say, no, I know that's unbelievable, but that's the way you are. So yeah, it really made a big difference. And what about your mental health? Took me off a trajectory. Well, I don't think I was in a place. Well, I don't think I was affected. I mean, people around me said my moods became, you know, I became much more even tempered. And I think that telling me nonsense you know i was fine before and fine afterwards uh, i don't believe these people anyway but other people said that i became more even tempered afterwards other people have done this since and you know now hundreds of thousands of people have bought that book and done what i've suggested and i get a lot of feedback and a lot of people say it has had a dramatic effect on their moods you know they, they don't have anything like the volatile mood swings they had before they're much more even tempered much more steady state in terms of the way they feel so it definitely has that effect. And you would expect that. I mean, the subsequent books that I've written more recently about the way the brain works in terms of the biochemistry of addiction would back that up 100%, yeah. which is that remove an addiction from someone's brain and a lot is going to change about the way their moods work. Yeah, I was going to actually ask you about that, David, about the fact that, you know, I know, and this is my experience and some people would probably agree with me when I say this, when I've been down or I've had a bit of a flat day, for example, you know, I might reach for a chocolate bar or have a nice piece of toast with peanut butter or whatever it is, man. It's just a little bit of a treat. I do feel like I get kind of like a dopamine spike in my chemistry mm. of my brain. Is that correct? No, no, absolutely, it's correct. Anything addictive will give you a hit. So the sugar will make you feel better. A cigarette would make you feel better. A drink would make you feel better. Anything addictive would make you feel better for a little while. It would give you a hit longer term, it would actually make you feel worse because all you're really doing is feeding the addiction. And what that dopamine hit does is reset a switch in your brain that is counting the number of dopamine hits you have and adjusting upwards. So it's sort of like a ratchet. Every time you hit it with the dopamine, it ratchets up a notch and it increases your tolerance for dopamine so that the next time you need a hit, it'll have to be bigger it'll have to be bigger to get you the same effect and do that enough times and you turn those hits into an addictive craving. Yeah. And when I guess you're referring to all things addicted, you know, addiction, so yes. drinking. Well, the brain doesn't care where you get the dopamine hit from. Yeah, no. doesn't care. Couldn't care less. Get it from sugar, get it from nicotine, get it from drugs, get it from social media, get it from playing a video game. It doesn't care where the dopamine hit comes from and they all hit the ratchet the same way. So your addictive element of choice might be a chocolate bar, but the guy next to you might be a cigarette, but you're both doing the same thing. Yeah, you're just feeding. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And so what are your, I guess, suggestions or advice to people that might be listening who are 
you know, struggling with some form of addiction. And, and you know, I understand you're not a mental health professional by any means. But like, yeah, just like not being a nutritionist or a dietitian or a doctor, I'm also not a mental health professional, but I am capable of reading the science on it. And so my most recent book, Brain Reset, is about that science. And Brain Reset goes into the detail of, well, what does this look like? Why does it work this way? And how do you stop it? And the bad news is it's bloody hard to stop. I guess that makes sense in that if it were easy to stop, Mm. it wouldn't be an addiction. I mean, by definition. Yeah, definitely true. So it is hard to stop. What is the hard part But there is the stopping. That's the hard part. I mean, what you have to do is actually stop. The only way that has been scientifically proven to break an addiction is to actually stop doing it. And so there's a lot of nonsense thrown around about, for example, quitting smoking and saying, oh, if you just switch to vaping, you're curing it. Well, you're not really. All you're doing is changing from one source of nicotine to another source of nicotine. You still have a nicotine addiction. You might be reducing the harm that comes with that addiction, although even that's, you know, questionable, debatable. People say, oh, vaping is better for you than smoking. Well, hitting yourself with a stick is better for you than smoking, but I don't think that should be the metric. So the deal is that if you want to break an addiction, you actually have to stop doing the addictive thing. That doesn't mean do it a little bit less. It means stop doing it. And I see this when I talk to parents because I wrote a book called Teen Brain, which was about how this applies to teenagers a few years ago. And parents often say things to me like, look, yeah, little Johnny does have a problem playing you know, violent video games, but it's all right. We're going to limit him to one hour a night. And that's a ridiculous thing to say about an addiction. And playing video games is an addiction. And for reasons which I won't go into in depth here, but it is, take it from me. And that's the same as saying, well, look, yeah, my kid drinks a lot of vodka, but I'm going to, you know, I'm only going to let him drink vodka for an hour a night or I'm only going to let him drink vodka on the weekends. And parents would think you were insane if you were saying that's the same thing. But from the brain's perspective, it is the same thing. And it will be just as effective as treating a vodka addiction by saying your kid can only drink on weekends. It won't work. And that's the hard bit about breaking addictions is that you have to actually stop doing it and there's some great resources in that book about there's been probably six seven decades of research into the most effective ways of doing that but what it boils down to is that it's very very hard to do alone and the presence or otherwise of a medical health professional makes no difference what you have to do is set down a program of intentionally not doing it with the support of others who are also not doing it at the same time. And if this is starting to sound familiar, I just described Alcoholics Anonymous Anonymous to you. And that's why Alcoholics Anonymous has spawned about 200 different copies of them for various addictions. So there's Narcotics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, blah, blah, blah. And they all work. Now, none of them work perfectly. You know, you've got about a 30% chance of breaking an addiction if you do everything right. And that's how hard this battle is, right? So yeah, that's, that's tough. you are fighting against the brain's biochemistry, but it can be done. When you say it can be done, is it kind of like you work with it enough in the right ways? It kind of changes because the brain is a malleable mechanism. You know, it changes. One of the big things that helps is understanding what's going on. 
And that's the reason I wrote Brain Reset, is to get in amongst the science of what exactly is your brain doing? What is it expecting you to do? What are the things to look for as signs of this is either working or not working? Okay. Do you have any takeaways from the book Brain Reset that you could share with us without going into too much? Detail. I'm just conscious of your time. No, I've got plenty of time. <laughs> this stuff's very interesting and I know okay. that my audience would love it. One of the big things is this thing that I was talking to you about before, this tolerance switch, which actually has a name in science, it's called Delta Fos B. This tolerance switch, which is the ratchet that gets notched up every time you take a dopamine hit. If you get no significant irregular dopamine hits, it ratchets down again all on its own. The trouble is it takes three months to do it. So you can go from an addictive state where it's very, very high back down to a normal state in three months of not getting abnormal dopamine hits. So you're talking about things like video games, coffee, social media, drugs, alcohol, smoking, all these things. All that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And an important word there is abnormal. Obviously, you need dopamine hits in your everyday life. It's an important part of our reward mechanism. It's about, well, without dopamine, we don't do anything. Yeah, we don't feel like we're doing enough. Yeah, unmotivated and all that sort of stuff. (laughs) Well, it's worse than that. It actually stops us doing things to survive. So no dopamine, you know, in experiments where they've, you know, disconnected, you know, for want of a better word, the dopamine mechanism in animals, even, you know, they take an animal, a lab animal that's starving, very, very hungry, put food right in front of it. But because it's dopamine is disconnected, it won't bother moving, you know, a centimeter to get the food, even though it's starving to death. So dopamine is really critically important as a motivator for human action. And what we're talking about is an irregular use of dopamine where you get hits that are too high, too frequent. And eventually, if you keep doing that, you create this mode in the brain called addiction. It's actually, you know, you'd probably better describe it as a high tolerance mode, which is that our brain sets itself up and says, oh, okay, we're in an environment where we are getting a lot of dopamine. So we have to change our parameters for what's an acceptable level. The result is, of course, that not everything in your life delivers high dopamine hits and the brain is set at a level where it says you have too little dopamine, even though it's quite normal. Now, too little dopamine looks like hyperactivity or attention deficit syndrome, where you can't focus on anything. And so you find that you can't you know, even read through an article, you can't retain attention on anything for more than a few seconds. And that's what low dopamine looks like. Now, it might be perfectly normal levels of dopamine, but an addict's brain says this is too low because that tolerance level has been set too high by the addiction. Yeah, right. So you've done, you've done the brain is saying, we need a lot of dopamine. You know, for me to pay attention to this thing that you're asking me to pay attention to, I need a lot of dopamine because I'm used to getting a lot of dopamine when I do stuff. And you're saying, no, 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 we're just going to read this article now. And the brain says, no, nah, can't focus on that. I don't have enough dopamine for focus. So that manifests itself in addicts as attention deficit. So, you know, in kids, in boys, that looks like them being hyperactive, acting out. It's just that they can't focus on any one thing. They can't stay focused on something. In girls, it often looks like distraction. They're daydreaming or whatever. It's all the same thing, which is it's the other side of addiction, which is that the brain thinks it, well, the brain wants more dopamine than it's getting from the current activity. It's not that they're getting not the right amount of dopamine. They're just not used to it. They're looking, they're like, it's hungry for more. Well, it's set too high. Yeah, it's, it's been the set. baseline is set too high. And it's because it's been pumping it, hey, with too much dopamine hits in the past. Okay, I'm with you. 
So like a cocaine addict or an alcoholic. That's right. It's constantly at such high levels. Even the smallest too high. thing won't even set them off at all. That's like they just keep no. chasing and chasing for the highest highs. Okay. That's right. That's right. Now, we know what this looks like on the other side of the dopamine system. The human brain reuses this whole system for threat assessment as well. So we know what this looks like for threat assessment, which is if we're in an environment where there's a lot of threat, where there's a lot of potential danger, we are on constant alert and that alert is being provided by dopamine. And if we live in that environment, so we're in a war zone or whatever, then the brain ratchets it up, the dopamine levels required so that we don't react like crazy to everything. We hear an explosion, but it's a kilometre away, we don't react. Whereas if we're used to an environment where there aren't explosions around us all the time, we would definitely react. So we're used to that threshold adjustment being done on the fear and reaction side of the brain, but it's the same system. And the interesting thing about it being the same system is that that means that if you are under chronic stress, you are much more likely to be addicted. And if you are addicted you are much more likely to suffer chronic stress because the same system is being used. Delta FOSB is used on the fear and stress response side just as much as it is on the addiction side. So we do it for pain and pleasure and we use the same system. And there's some really interesting studies, which I go through in some depth in Brain Reset, looking at animal studies where they've proven this by inducing stress in animals and they do it in interesting ways by you know keeping their cages tilted playing loud music flashing lights at them not letting them sleep that sort of thing so that they're stressed all the time and then measured their susceptibility to addiction as well can you explain on this last note because mate i'm definitely wanting to do a part two of this at some stage and we'll get right into the mechanics and the you know the psychological side of the you know your book and the work that you've done on brain reset and you know the team brain and yep. all those sort of great things run me through with an example right you've got someone young guy or girl someone maybe listening here right now that suffers with high levels of stress or anxiety always activating the flight fight response body constantly feels like it's on edge right hot sweaty heart palpitations i've been through it. this i do go through this personally myself from time to time what's the correlation or the direct correlation between constantly being in that level of stress or anxiety and then possibly being more prone to you know succumbing to an addiction or having an addictive personality for a better word there's no such thing as an addictive personality but it's high probability that your delta fos b that tolerance level is too high because that's what's causing the anxiety and the depression anxiety and depression by the way are just two sides of the same thing and that's what's causing that and either that is caused by an addiction setting the delta fos b too high or it is caused by some sort of chronic stressor in the person's life doing the same thing or more probably both because they tend to make each other happen so that financial stress for example puts a person's delta fos b too high and then they then take on an addiction which makes the financial stress even worse and makes the delta fos b even higher so they tend to work together because they're all operating on the same switch yeah right yeah and they're all intertwined and connected aren't they you could look at it from a perspective of okay highly strung or stressed and then using alcohol or binge eating it makes them feel better temporarily yeah when you're anxious when you're in that state of mind then what's going on there is your body is saying i don't have enough dopamine to feel normal and so when you give it some dopamine you will feel normal. That's why ADHD kids or ADD kids are prescribed Ritalin. Ritalin is a powerful stimulant. It generates dopamine. 
And a stressed person, an anxious person is self-medicating when they have a drink because they know that having a drink or having a cigarette makes them feel better. And it does for that moment when they get that dopamine hit. But then but why does the it make problem it is that it also hits the ratchet and up it goes another notch. So the next time will be even worse. Yeah, right. I'm mate, fully following. But then why after, and I'm not sure you might have the answer for this, but why after a, let's say you've got an anxious person who turns to having a cigarette or looks for that mm-hmm. immediate impact that's going to help lower that part of their brain where they feel a little bit more relaxed and, and at ease. But then why does it come back with an adventure after that and it becomes worse? What's that because of? Well, because you've got the dopamine hit, which is giving you the temporary relief. But remember that each dopamine hit pushes that Delta Fos B ratchet one notch higher. So next time you need even more, which means that your brain's assessment of how you are feeling, which is how much dopamine you don't have, which is a measurement of how anxious you are, is lower. And so Every time, whilst you get immediate relief from doing the behavior which stimulates the dopamine, and it is immediate relief, which is why people keep doing it, it longer term makes the problem much worse. Yeah, spot on, mate. It really it's is. the same as the body's solution to... So one of the body's solutions is that it knows that, for example, if you stay awake, you'll get a dopamine hit. So staying awake increases dopamine production and so what the body does is a bit of a self-help solution when you are in this state of anxiety is it keeps you awake because that gives you dopamine which helps solve the problem from the body's perspective the problem is that in staying awake you're actually making things worse you become sleep deprived and decision making gets worse impulse control gets worse the addiction gets worse but the body doesn't think about what's happening in three days time It thinks about what's happening in the next second. And in the next second, it knows if you stay awake, you'll get more dopamine, which is what it's measured as being required, which is it's saying there isn't enough dopamine here. I know he's not going to give me a cigarette. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stay awake. That is absolutely incredible. I've never thought of it like that, man. I I could speak to you for hours, especially around (laughs) this part. Like, I mean, mate, it just, it sounds, mate, you're a very passionate man. You're very you're well versed in this area you've obviously done a shit ton of research over the years and you know when i talk about research i talk about real hard evidence and you've probably weighed it up against other evidence and whatnot to get to this place of having a very clear point of view so one thing that i should say about everything that i write is it's all referenced i don't expect anybody to believe a word i'm saying every single thing i say you can track down to a reference in the back of each every book and you can go read the evidence yourself. And that's great because it, it gives you, you know, credibility on, you know, this isn't just your opinion. This stuff stacks up, mate. I've got no doubt. I mean, I'm not an expert, which doesn't give me a right to an opinion. I am simply reporting what the evidence says. You're utilizing your words and I guess your instrument as the vessel to showcase that, yep. which, mate, I find is incredible. And I feel very grateful to have your time today. We've spoken, you know, for about 55 odd minutes and I could definitely speak to you for at least another 55 minutes. So hopefully you and I can pick this back up and maybe do a part two series on this, mate. Maybe, you know, dive really deep into maybe the saturated fats part of healthy living and the direct correlation with mental health and mental health challenges and addiction. I think they're areas that we're very interested in. I think it, yeah, just goes to show what you're doing is making a real impact, mate. How can people follow you and I guess follow your journey. Yeah, I'm on Facebook. If you just 
look for David Gillespie on the verified David Gillespie on Facebook. So that's probably the easiest way. But you can just go to my website too, which is davidgillespie.org, or you can buy any of my books from Amazon. There's, well, anywhere, but Amazon's where you'll find all of them. Yeah, it's easy, good old Amazon too, isn't it? Yeah. Mate, I'll make sure I put all the books and all the links and everything else that's needed in the show notes so that people can go there and purchase them and follow what you're up to and stay in touch and mate yeah look i've left on you know this podcast with a wealth of new knowledge and understanding especially around you know correlation with sugar and you know just the different types of what i found fascinating is just how america do it so different to australia when it comes to advertising on Mm. labels and how impactful that could have to people and it's kind of like yeah it's not the greatest thing especially if you think you're being told everything and it's correct it's just yeah it's not it's not yeah ideal. well don't go in assuming that anyone's got your best interest at heart yeah. <laughs> that's, that's you know nobody cares what you die of in 20 years they just care whether you buy their product today yeah exactly no exactly mate well i appreciate it and everyone yeah, has no it, worries yeah, and mate i appreciate your time appreciate the work that you do the books that you've written the lives you've changed and mate we'll link up again in the very near Absolutely. future yeah and if you need anything from me mate please reach out and ask always here to help No worries. Good to talk to you, Sam. You too, David. Thanks so much. All right. See you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening in to another episode of It Ain't Week to Speak. Please subscribe to the show and help us climb the charts so that we can attract new listeners and change more lives. If you found something very useful in this episode, please share and spread the love to as many people as you can. Don't forget to leave a review or a comment so that we can grow this community together because a conversation can save a life. If you want to continue this chat, please join me on the podcast Facebook group at living.org. I can't wait to share the next episode with you. But in the meantime, we're going to the top. And remember, it ain't weak to speak. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.